0: Well, it is really a privilege for me to be able to share God's word with you this morning as we are going through Exodus. The book of Exodus is all about God making himself known. First to the Israelites, first to Moses, then the Israelites, then Egypt. In every detail of everything that happens in Exodus, God is revealing who he is. In the plagues, he made it clear that he is the only real God there is. At the Passover, he revealed himself as a redeemer. At the Red Sea, he revealed himself as a savior. In the wilderness, he's now revealing himself as a, a guide, a provider. And most of all, a God of astounding grace. You see, God had redeemed Israel out of slavery, out of Egypt, through the sea to become his new people and they are learning what it means to live as his people they're learning through every hardship and every obstacle that yahweh is trustworthy and that he is with them each time he reveals himself in a new way to israel they understand who he is more clearly and they're learning Also, what it means to be faithful and obedient to him. So, as we read the accounts of their experience with God, we, our understanding of who he is and how we can be faithful and obedient to him grows as well. As Pastor Chuck pointed out so well last week, the experience of Israel in Exodus is a mirror of, it mirrors the experience of the Christian life today. If you're a Christian, you've already been redeemed by God's grace alone. You've passed through the water, and now you are living as God's new people. We live in the space between the already and the not yet, in the wilderness between redemption and the promised land. And you and I are learning to live as God's new covenant people, to walk by faith, So, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, these things, what's in Exodus, are written for our instruction. In the passage we're about to look at today, God reveals himself in a new way yet again. You're probably familiar with the phrase, there's a first time for everything. Well, in Exodus 17 verses 8 through 16, there are a lot of firsts. And as we read it, you may notice some of them. The first thing, uh, the the many firsts in this text are a a mark of shift for Israel. Their journey through the wilderness is about to take on a new dimension, one that they've never experienced before. Up to this point, God had literally done everything for them. Now, He's going to ask them to act. More than that, he's going to command them to fight. Look at Exodus 17, 8 through 16 with me. Before I read this, I want to remind you that everywhere in the Old Testament where you see the phrase, the Lord, and Lord is in all caps, that that word Lord in all caps is a a placeholder of sorts for the, the name of God, the covenant name of God, his personal name, Yahweh. It's the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush that we read about back in chapter 3. Because today's text deals directly with a new name for God, uh, revealing a new facet of his character, I'll be reading the Lord in this passage as Yahweh, so don't be alarmed. Uh, Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16, this is the word of the Lord. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on the one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek. And his people with the sword. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Yahweh is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of Yahweh. Yahweh will have war with Amalek generation to generation. Father, these are your words we've just read. Lord, would you, by the power of your Spirit, reveal to us your truth so that we may hear, understand, and respond to you today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, in this passage, we see a new problem for Israel. They have been attacked by this tribe called Amalek. We're not told why the Amalekites attacked Israel, but this would not have been unusual behavior for them. Amalek was a tribe of nomadic herders. We might call them Bedouins. Uh, They inhabited the desert just south of Canaan, the Negev Desert and the northern part of the Sinai Peninsula. They were notorious for supplementing their income by by ambushing trade caravans and, and travelers and also for raiding the farming peoples of Canaan. Amalek, the man that this tribe was named after, had been a grandson of Esau. Esau was the twin brother of Jacob, who later had his name changed by God to Israel. So Amalek was the great-grandson of Isaac and the great-great-grandson of Abraham. Amalek, the Amalekites are distant cousins of the Israelites, but not friendly cousins, more like Hatfields and McCoys. The animosity between these two peoples had went back a long way. In Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 and 18, Moses gives us a little bit more detail about this attack. There he says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. Amalek attacked the tail of Israel. That's the stragglers, which would have been women, children, the elderly, the infirmed. But in God's eyes, far worse than Amalek's despicable tactics was the fact that they did not fear God. Amalek was descended from a family that had known of Yahweh and had utterly rejected him. And so now, for the first time ever, God commands the Israelites to go out and fight. Wait a minute. What's going on here? Not very long before this, God had completely annihilated the strongest army on earth, all by himself in a matter of minutes. Why is he asking Israel to fight at all? Why didn't he just send over some more of those plagues on the Amalekites, or send over the angel of death again, or just cause the ground to open up and swallow them? We know God could have dealt with Amalek all by himself. So why doesn't he? Do you ever ask that sort of question about God in relation to your life? Why doesn't God just take care of this for me? Why would God want me to struggle with this? Why has God allowed this enemy in my life If God is in my life, and he's so powerful, why is this such a battle for me? Well, I think there are five lessons that Israel needed to learn that day, and they're the same five lessons God wants us to hear this morning. The first is, God's people need to fight. Look at verse nine again. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men, and go out and fight with the Moloch. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now it's absolutely true that in some things God acts alone with nothing required from us. Regeneration, the act by which God takes a sinner dead in his sin like I was and made me alive in Christ, regenerate, that's God's work alone. Just like God's redemption of Israel out of slavery was solely his work alone. But it's also true that after we're redeemed and we are walking by faith as God's people, there are struggles. There are enemies. There are battles. We discover as we go that God has not removed any of these from our lives. Instead, God intends that we learn to rely on His power in the midst of them. The New Testament describes the Christian life in many places as a fight, as a battle. And it often describes believers as soldiers. In Philippians 2, Paul addressed Christians as fellow soldiers and as good soldiers in 2 Timothy chapter 2. In Ephesians 6, he tells the church, put on the full armor of God. He tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 to fight the good fight. The New Testament's writers often use words like strive, toil, endure, labor, persevere, overcome in describing the life of a follower of Christ. Christianity is not passive. Walking by faith requires active participation on my part. I must contend, strive, fight, pursue holiness. Not to gain anything from God. As we'll see, to allow him to show his power and grace through us. As we learn to trust him more and more through battles, our faith in him grows. And the Holy Spirit transforms us more and more into the image of Christ. This process by which we fight and rely on God's power at the same time is the process we call sanctification. Paul said again in Ephesians 6, our battle is not against flesh and blood. No, our battles our spiritual battles. We don't do battle with Amalekites or any other people for that matter. For those of us who are in Christ, the Amalekites represent our spiritual enemies. In general terms, those enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. But for each of us, our enemies are much more personal than that. What are your enemies? Where's your battle at this morning? Maybe for you it's doubt or bitterness. Temptation to sexual sin. Opposition from unbelieving family members. Physical limitations or disease. Unforgiveness, anxiety. Loving the things of the world, addiction, craving the approval of others, discouragement. On and on we could go, but you know where you struggle. You know where the battle is. If you're in Christ, you are called to walk worthy of the calling you have in Christ Jesus. Walking requires action. Living by faith is not just sitting back and saying, I'll just let go and let God. Faith doesn't work that way. It never did. James, the book of James, tells us clearly, faith without works is dead, which means real faith will always be an active faith. So God's people need to fight. The second lesson we see in this text is that God's people need each other. Look at verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. This is the first mention in the Bible of Joshua and Hur. What an interesting moment for their introduction. At the very moment when God is leading his people to understand walking by faith in a new way, that is actively fighting, We meet these two men. You see, God did not command every individual Israelite to go out and fight by himself against the Amalekites. No, he makes it clear to them, you must fight together. The first thing Moses told Joshua to do was, go get some other guys. Moses, Aaron, Hur, Joshua, and all the other men that Joshua recruited that day, They all had different roles to play, but they had a common enemy, and they fought together as one. Brothers and sisters, because God has saved us and created a new people for himself, the body of Christ, well, then your battles are my battles, and my battles are your battles. The Christian life is not meant to be a solitary one. We are meant to fight together. One of the reasons it's vital that someone who claims to be a believer should join, should become a member of a local church is so that they have others to fight alongside them. When someone becomes a member of Church on Mill, they join a family of faith, but they also join a company of fellow soldiers. Joshua did not face Amalek alone. Neither should we face our spiritual enemies alone. The third lesson we see here is by far the most important lesson that Israel needed to learn that day, and so it's the most important lesson for us as well. That is, God's people need God's power, not their own power. Look at verse Verses 11 through 13, this is the account of the actual battle. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands. One on the one side, the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. What a curious battle report. No mention of tactics or numbers or casualties or accounts of bravery, nothing of the sort. Instead, what we see is a focus on the staff of God, God's power in relation to the battle. When the staff is held up, The Israelites are winning. When the staff is not, the Amalekites are winning. If you look closely, you see in every detail of these three verses is shouting the same point. You can do nothing without God's power. At first, it might seem curious to us that God would fight a battle by saying, Moses, go stand up on top of that hill and hold a stick over your head. This was not just a stick. This was the staff of God, the symbol of his power. Throughout Exodus, the staff of God consistently represents God's power, God's authority, and God's presence. Moses holds it up above him to show symbolically God's power is higher, it's better than mine is. this might seem rather obvious point to us but in reality we flawed humans struggle with this all the time we struggle over and over with this ascribing credit to people that rightly belongs to God well God makes it clear here it's my power that's great Moses raised the staff above his head try holding anything over your head your Bible for example Just hold it up for 20 minutes even. What happens? Blood rushes away from your hand, starts to get heavy, and you get tired. It's inevitable. This posture is impossible to maintain. Why would God ask Moses to do something that he knows he can't do? That's the point. Moses' weakness an insufficiency is publicly displayed. The Israelites were not victorious because of Moses' strength or his virtue in any way. Rather, in his weakness, God has proven to be strong. Moses needed to sit down. <laughs> Moses needed help. He had people hold his arms up for him. You and I can sympathize with Moses, can't we? We grow weary. Sometimes it seems like we won't make it one more day if the, the way things are. Sometimes it doesn't feel like victory will ever come. Sometimes prayer gives way to anxiety or discouragement. Just like Moses. Sometimes we need the assistance of others. When we're struggling, we have each other to hold us up. Who's your Aaron? Who do you turn to to support you when you're weak? Who are you helping to steady by your encouragement? Church, let's hold each other up as we rely on God's power. Praise God, he has given us each other to fight our battle side by side. But much more than we need each other, we need God's power. When we are in our weakness, his power shines most gloriously. Some would see in these these three verses a a lesson on uh, the power of intercessory prayer. Well, the text doesn't say that Aaron or Moses or her were praying. Maybe they were. Seems like a good time to pray. But the point of these verses is not Moses' intercession or his faithfulness and effectiveness in prayer. The point is, I need God's power to fight my spiritual enemies. Let's look at this battle from the perspective of the battlefield. What do we see? Well. The text says, the tide in the battle turned when Joshua conducted a brilliant flanking action against the Amalekite left. No, it doesn't say that. Oh, it says, the Israelites proved themselves worthy that day as brave warriors, much better swordsmen than the Amalekites. No, it doesn't say that either. What we see instead is the weakness and insufficiency of Israel. With God's power, victory. Without God's power, Defeat, simple, clear. The Amalekites were seasoned warriors who had fought in many battles. They did this all the time. They were well-armed, experienced, confident. How many battles had the Israelites fought? How much military training did they have? What kind of weapons did they have? The Israelites were a bunch of former slaves, not warriors. Without God fighting with them and through them, this battle would have been a massacre. God had commanded them to do what he knew that they alone could not do. Why? So that they were forced to recognize and rely on his power alone. They acted but they acted in faith in his power. If you're in Christ, if you're one of God's people today, he will require things of you that you can't do so that you must rely on his power if there's to be any hope of victory. Whatever battle you're facing right now, we fight it together. And yet, we must totally rely on God's power because We have none. This is a difficult balance for us, one we have to learn, just like the Israelites had to learn it. When we face an enemy or a battle, our first instinctive reaction is to give it everything we got, to fight in our strength alone, as if that would be enough, or to give up and accept defeat. God, through His Word this morning, is assuring us I give victory when you fight and rely on my power at the same time. Well, in the aftermath of this battle, we find two final lessons for us in verses 14 through 16. Look at that. Then Yahweh said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Yahweh is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of Yahweh. Yahweh will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The first lesson we see in these three verses is that God's people need to know God's character and remember his promises. This is the first reference in the Bible to the writing down of what God has done in a book. And what does it say the purpose of it is? To be a memorial, to help Israel remember who Yahweh is, what he's done, and what he promises. God promises here to blot out Amalek from under heaven. That might sound harsh to you, but we always have to remember that God's judgment is always right and always good. God is justice. He defines it. Amalek had earned God's judgment. They had not only rejected God, but now they are actively fighting against him and his people. This prophecy against Amalek serves as a warning that the fate of the Amalekites will be the same fate for all of those who reject God. Utter and complete judgment. Friend, if you're here and you have not surrendered your life to Christ the King and accepted his forgiveness, you will one day face his wrath and judgment, just like Amalek. This verse also serves as a promise for God's people to assure them that victory would come in God's timing for those who fight and rely on God's power. The entire book of Revelation is essentially a guarantee of final victory for God's elect. God commands Moses to write, recite this in the ears of Joshua. Why? Well, because Joshua is gonna become the next leader, God's chosen leader of Israel, and there would be more battles to come. Joshua, of all people, must never forget that the battle belongs to Yahweh, not to him, and that God has already promised victory. Moses builds an altar and names it. Altars like this were also meant as a memorial to remember a day and a place where God revealed himself in his power. The name Moses gives this altar was a new name for God. Yahweh Nisi, Yahweh is my banner. The Hebrew word translated banner in this text is used elsewhere in Scripture many times. Usually it means signal pole or standard. Sometimes it's translated simply signal, sometimes banner. But it's always a military term. In ancient warfare, standards were specially decorated poles uh, or poles with banners on them. Roman legions used standards. Each legion had a long pole with a silver eagle on top with the letters SPQR on it. that represented the, the proclaiming, proclaiming that this legion fought with the authority of the Senate and people of Rome. Each individual Roman battalion or, or century also had its own standard to distinguish the authority of one centurion of another so people knew who they were fighting with. In medieval, medieval Europe, every earl, every duke, every king went into battle with his own colors, his own banner. These banners and standards have always represented the authority and power under which an army fights. Moses has this same concept in mind when he says, Yahweh is my banner. Before the invention of modern communication, standards and banners were used in battle as a point of reference and communication in battle. The battle was directed from the standard. Troops rallied and regrouped at the standard. Orders were issued from the standard. When a trumpet would sound during battle, a soldier would look back to the standard for direction. Moses sees the staff of God in his hand, and he sees the, the victory that God's power has achieved, and he declares a new name for God. One that highlights this new, newly revealed aspect of God's character. Yahweh Nisi. Yahweh is my banner. He also said, a hand upon the throne of Yahweh. As if to say, when my hand is raised high towards God with the banner of God, the power of God in my hand, it's like I'm touching the very throne of Yahweh, the seat of his power and authority. The people of God knew God in a new way. They knew and would always remember God in this way. God gives victory when we fight and when we rely on his power at the same time. The rest of Exodus and the rest of Israel's history, Yahweh would be their banner. As Christians, what's our banner? What is our source of power, authority, victory? Well, a few hundred years after this battle took place, Isaiah, the prophet of God, as he looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, that Messiah who would one day redeem a people for himself, prophesied this in Isaiah 11:10 and 12. He said, "In that day the root of Jesse, that's the Messiah, who shall stand as a signal, same word as banner in Exodus. He shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his place shall be resting place shall be glorious." Verse 12, he he will raise a signal for the nations, and he will assemble the banished of Israel, the gathered, the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And then hundreds of years after that prophecy by Isaiah, Jesus said of himself in John 12, 32, And I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself if you are in Christ, Jesus is your banner. He is your righteousness. He is your strength. He is your victory. He told his disciples in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. The final lesson for us in this text is found in the last sentence of verse 16. Yahweh... We'll have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The immediate battle was was over, but the war with Amalek would continue for generations to come. God's people need to keep fighting because the war's not over. Yes, God gave victory that day, but Amalek remained. They would be back. God had promised to blot them out, but they would remain Israel's enemy for centuries. Ultimately, God would keep his promise and bring final judgment on Amalek, but it would come at his timing. God chooses the battle. God empowers the fight, and God gives victory, which means we don't get to choose what victory looks like or when it will come. God does. Why would God choose to allow this ongoing conflict with the Amalekites to continue generation after generation? To teach his people perseverance in their faith. They needed to keep fighting. And we too need to keep fighting. You may not see victory over a particular battle the way you would like or when you would like, but if you fight and rely on God's power at the same time, He has promised that victory will come ultimately. God has promised to continue to fight for you and through you. You and I will continue to face battles, no doubt. But God gives victory when we fight and rely on His power at the same time. Jesus is our banner. He says, Trust me. Rely on my power. I will empower you to accomplish my purposes in you. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not in Christ, you may not even know what I mean by that. If you've not yet repented of your sin and committed your life to following Jesus as Lord by faith, then this text from Exodus has a message for you as well. You have battles. You have enemies. You have struggles. You don't need to fight them alone. You weren't meant to fight them alone. Frankly, your strength isn't near enough. But there is one who loves you and whose power and grace is sufficient. He wants to fight for you. Jesus said that when he was lifted up on the cross, the result would be that all kinds of people would be drawn to him for salvation. He alone can free you from your slavery to sin and give you a new life in him. A life that includes the power of the Holy Spirit in you. If you'll surrender your life to Christ, he has promised he'll fight for you and through you. Any Christian in the room will tell you uh, following Christ does not, definitely does not remove the battles from life. They will continue. But in Christ, you can have the same power working in you that we see working in Exodus today. For those of us in Christ, God gives victory when we fight and rely on his power at the same time. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this week you would make your presence and your authority and your power real in our lives. Lord, help us learn to fight and at the same time to rely completely on your power. Father, would you go before us and as we face enemies this week and battles this week, and would you be our banner?